All right, well, if you have your Bibles, uh, please open up to Acts chapter 2. If you weren't with us this last week, or if you just can't even remember last week, you have terrible uh, short-term memory. Uh, We're in Acts chapter 2. We've broken up, even though it's it's the same day, we've broken up into two sermons. It was the day of Pentecost, one of three uh, annual festivals that the Jews celebrated, uh, also known as the Festival of the Harvest. Uh, it's, uh, it's called Pentecost because it's 50 days after the Passover. So the 120 uh, had been gathered together. They were waiting uh, for the promised Holy Spirit. Jesus said that the Spirit would come. They needed to wait. The Spirit would come in power. And, and suddenly during their gathering, they hear what sounds like this mighty rushing wind. I mean, it just stops everyone in their tracks, gets their attention. And then, as we read last week, this fire comes down. It separates into what looked like tongues of fire, rests on these believers. They start speaking these languages, real languages, um, but not languages that they knew, not languages that they had spoken. And a crowd gathers because of the noise. We don't know if the the wind was a part of it. Certainly, though, at least the languages were a part of it. And it says that they're astounded. I mean, they're they're perplexed. They're dumbfounded. They hear these Galileans speaking in their native tongue, right, where they're from originally. And there are a couple responses. Some ask, what does this mean? Right, like what, what they just saw, what they heard is unlike anything that, that they'd ever experienced. They say, what does this mean? And then others respond, uh, mocking. They say, no, they're just drunk. And, and Peter takes this as an opportunity. He says, no, we're, we're not drunk. It, it's, it's the morning. It's 9 a.m., and he jumps into the first sermon of this brand new church. He, he quoted uh, the Old Testament prophet Joel that we talked about last week. And he said, in the last days, uh, Joel said, the spirit would be poured out. So Peter, by quoting Joel, is saying, hey, this, this is what Joel was talking about, right? This is what Joel uh, could, could see was coming. These are the last days. You just witnessed God pouring out his spirit, right? That's what you just heard. That's what you just saw. And the day of the Lord is coming, this day of judgment, this great day of judgment and salvation, judgment for those who do not trust in God and and salvation for those who call upon the name of the Lord. And and, and we find out here in, in verse 22 what that name is. He transitions here in the sermon to show us that this is all about Jesus. And if you're reading this or hearing this for the first time, or if you were there on that day, it would be natural to think, oh, Pentecost, that's about the Holy Spirit, of course. Like, look what just happened. And, and while it, 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 it appears that way, and there's some truth to that, Peter rightly tells the crowd that all of this happened because you need to know about Jesus. This is the name. This is the one that you need to call upon. So verse 22 in chapter 2, join me there. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God. So attested to you, like certified, proven, right? So a a man uh, proven to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. They were around. They'd heard, or some of them had seen the miracles. And the miracles were God's way, Peter's saying, 
of God. God's saying, hey, look at my son, right? Pay attention to my son. And throughout Peter's sermon here at Pentecost, we, we see this, how God views Jesus, how he treats Jesus, his acceptance of Jesus, contrasted with how the people reject Jesus. And so Alyssa's question to begin our service, how do you think about God, is incredibly appropriate. And the first way that God, uh, that we see how God views Jesus, his acceptance of Jesus, is through the miracles. He's, he's attesting to who Jesus is. So there are at least, in the Gospels, 36 uh, distinct miracles recorded. Um, the Gospels uh, record all kinds of miracles, right? Jesus heals uh, the blind multiple times, heals the lame. Uh, we remember when Jesus commands the wind, commands the storm for it to die down. We remember uh, the miraculous uh, feeding of thousands, right? Just off this kid's lunch. Uh, maybe think of Jesus walking on water. Um, <clears throat> I always forget about this one, but I love the one where they're like, how do we pay the taxes? And Jesus says, go fishing. And, and you're going to get a fish and just pull the coin out of his mouth. I'm like, okay. Like, wouldn't that be a great way to do that on April 15th? Um, certainly we think of Jesus <clears throat> raising Lazarus from the dead. John ends his gospel this way. This won't be on the screen. Uh, John 21, 25, it says, uh, John says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Right? These 36 miracles in the gospels, they're just a sample of what Jesus did in his mystery, uh, ministry. And, and uh, Peter says, God did these in your midst, right? You know this is true because it happened among you. Some of you in the crowd, some of you saw this yourself, or, or if you didn't see it, you know someone that did, right? Your, your cousin was there when this happened, or, or that, that family that you buy bread from, they were there. They've told you about what Jesus did. If this, if this wasn't true, then, then the crowd would know, right? The, they had no argument, though, to stand on. This real guy named Jesus from Nazareth did these miracles. Right? There's no, no, no way of explaining them away. Like Even if they didn't know what to do with it, they, they had to admit, yeah, yeah I heard, or, or I saw that this happened. If they didn't happen, then the whole sermon would fall apart right here. Peter goes on, verse 23. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Right? You crucified him. You crucified Jesus by handing him over to the Romans, by urging Pilate to crucify. All of this was God's plan. Luke says in his gospel, Luke 24, 46, this is Jesus speaking. He says, Thus it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So God planned the suffering. God planned the death of Jesus and the resurrection so that the forgiveness of sin could be preached to all the nations. And it's interesting, on the one hand, Right, we see that the Jews' plan, Pilate's plan to crucify was a rejection of Jesus. And simultaneously, God's plan to crucify Jesus was to glorify him, 
to show the world his supreme worth, his supreme value, that he is the only one who can save the world from sin. You crucified and killed him. But then look at the contrast here in 24. He did not stay dead. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Pangs, this isn't a word that, that, that I use really ever, except for when I'm reading scripture, talking about passages like this one. Uh, and, and there's a mixed metaphor here. Um, I know my teachers back in the day would get on me for a mixed metaphor. I should have just said, hey, Peter did it. And it worked out pretty well for him that day. So anyway, there, there's, there's these mixed metaphors going on here that, that there's this loosing of the pangs of death, like Jesus, yeah, picture him like he's tied up, like he's, he's bound in, in chains or, or ropes or, or something. But then when we think pangs, we, we also, at least in scripture, we, we think of, of birth, uh, of labor. Um, there, there's a couple places. Uh, Matthew 24, 8, this won't be on the screen. Um, Jesus says, all these are but the beginnings of birth pains. Uh, Mark 13, 8, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are, the, these are but the beginning of birth pangs. So, so the, the picture here is that, that, um, that God was loosening the, these cords that, that, that the grave was going to give birth to Jesus. It could not hold him back. Um, our firstborn, uh, it, uh, it started off way more peaceful than I imagined, like when we got to the hospital. It was a Sunday morning. Um, we got to the hospital. It was, uh, it was in March, so March Madness was going on. I'm a huge basketball fan, college and pro. Um, and uh, we got to the, the hospital room, and, and, and don't get me wrong, the contractions were intense. My wife would tell you that, um, and I would support her in that. Um, the, the contractions were intense, but then there was like just, we were just hanging out, talking. And at some point she goes, there's a TV in here. And I'm like, yeah. And she goes, do you want to turn on the game? And I'm like thinking, is this a test? Like, <laughs> how do I answer this? I'm like, what do you want, sweetie? And she's like, yeah, let's put the game on. And so we're watching the game, and it is nothing like the movies, like nothing like I expected. Hours go by, and yes, contractions were intense when they happened, but, but really, like, there's not much progress going on. And, and they decided, okay, we're going we're gonna to break your water. Everything changed, right? Like, it got intense. There was no more game on. Uh, there, was, there was loud talking, some might say shouting, um, not necessarily at me. Um, I've heard uh, for some women in labor that, uh, that, that they can have this moment of, like, freaking out, like, I can't do this. I can't give birth. Lynn's never had that. She was just super logical, like, baby's being born. Like, I can't stop it. And, and it, it is amazing that, that somehow, like in God's good creation, the body just tells you or makes you or compels you, I don't know exactly how, but to push. And this, this baby is coming, whether you think you can do it or not. So, so the picture is the grave was in, in the pangs of labor and could not hold Jesus in the grave. And so it's a weird metaphor, but, but, but there's no way that the grave could avoid giving birth to Jesus. He was going to live no matter what the grave did. He goes on, verse 25, and he's quoting uh, uh, David, King David, uh, from Psalm 16. He says, For David says concerning him, 
I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. And don't think hell here. Uh, think the place of the dead. So you, you won't abandon me to death. And he goes on, he says, uh, or let your Holy One see corruption, or maybe your translation says decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Right? It was not possible for Jesus to stay dead. Jesus would certainly be raised. Romans 4.25 says this about Jesus, his resurrection. He says, who is delivered up for our trespasses, right, for our sins, and raised for our justification. Right? The resurrection was a demonstration that we can be justified. It was evidence that we can have life because Christ was raised to life. Right? This is an incredible truth because what we faced was death. Right? We know the scripture. It goes, for the wages of sin is death. Right? That because of my sin, what I owe is death. Right? I owe my life. With every sin, I'm just piling up this debt of death and dying daily, hour by hour. I owe my life. My sin debt is compounding. And that was true until Jesus. He died for sin. He paid the price for sin. And now the sinner can, can in Christ have life, justified by his death and his resurrection. Paul in Corinthians, I love it. He's like mocking death. He says, death, where is your sting? Oh, that's right. Jesus removed the stinger, so to speak. And he's given life to all of his people, all who trust in him. Peter goes on, verse 29. He says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So Peter is making the point that, hey, very clearly, King David, right, our greatest king ever, he died. So he could not be writing about himself here in Psalm 16. They put him in a grave. And we trust that his body, like every other body before it, decayed. And those in the crowd that day, they still knew where his tomb was. If they wanted to, they could go visit the site of his tomb. So instead of writing about himself, David was looking ahead. This is a prophecy about the Messiah, about the Christ that would rise from the dead. He would not stay dead. So in this sermon, Peter uses three Old Testament passages. We looked at Joel last week. We looked at Psalm 16 here. We'll look at Psalm 110 in a moment. And what we see, what Peter helps us see, is that all of them point us to Jesus. And this is what scripture does. Right? It points us to Jesus. And I know, uh, I'm guessing many of you at the new year, you decide, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start a Bible read-through. And unless you are flying, you're, you're somewhere in the Old Testament right now. Do you see how it points us to Jesus? Jesus said himself that this is what the scriptures do. In, in Luke 24, 27, 
This is in beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Right? What scriptures did they have at that point? It's what we call our Old Testament. He, he said all of this, all of this points to the Christ. Scripture bears witness to Christ. It points us to his life, his death, his resurrection, his world mission. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, right? The, the, the 120 there, we witness this. Verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and this is from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. All right, so let's put this together. We're going to back up a little bit. The crowd stopped, right, because they heard possibly the wind, certainly the languages. Peter says that what you heard is the result of the Holy Spirit being poured out on this day. And not just anyone gets to pour out the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was poured out by the one who sits at the right hand of God. This is the Messiah. The Messiah is the one who God would not let decay. He's the one who would not stay dead, but would rise and be exalted. Now, who do we know that died, but could not stay dead and has ascended to be at the right hand of God? It's Jesus, right? The, 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 he's saying, we are witnesses, right? The people you just saw and heard speak these languages were witnesses of this. So this is the one whom David is referring to in Psalm 110. He's looking down the line. He knows that in his lineage, there'll be a king forever, the son of David, and he's calling him his Lord. He says, Yahweh, right? The Lord said to my Lord. And we see here how great the Messiah is. It says he's so great that God promises to make his enemies his footstool. So if you were one in the crowd that day and you're following Peter's logic here, his, his, uh, his line of his argument, in that last line you hear God is going to make his enemies his footstool, you have to have this what have I done moment. Right? I was an enemy, or I am an enemy of Jesus. I rejected Jesus. Right? Even for those who weren't in the crowd just about 50 days before shouting, crucify. Right? They're thinking, I, I don't want to be the footstool of the Christ. I do not want to be his enemy. And for those who, who weren't following Peter yet, verse 36 is the climax. It says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And I don't know if you're like me, but I can get caught up, uh, hung up, I guess, in that word made there. It just doesn't sound right. It doesn't mean that, that God changed Jesus from something that he wasn't to something that he was. We need to think more of uh, installed to, to his rightful office, his rightful place, right? He, Jesus is Lord and Christ as he, always, as he always was. Now we see that this is his uh, exalted place. This is what God has done. So Jesus is both Lord and Christ. He's, he's your divine ruler. He is the royal deliverer. He is God. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah, the Savior that Israel had been waiting for for generations. This Jesus 
whom you crucified. What a way to end a sermon. Uh, one challenge for me as a preacher is uh, I, I, think, I think through the words that, that I speak every Sunday, not to say that every word's written out, but a lot of them are. And I, I think through, okay, so if I say this, this way, how will this impact this kind of person? You know, what will it do to, to this person's way of thinking? Or, or what will it do to how they feel? Um, if, if I say this, will, will it distract them or will it hurt them or will it, it, will it help them? Will it offend them? And, and, and so what if I say it this way? Um, and, and some of that is done with uh, good motives. And some of that is, is battling fear, right? The fear of people. Well, Peter doesn't fear the crowd. Not because they couldn't do harm to him. I, I guarantee they could have. This is a large crowd. In just a couple of verses, in verse 41, we read that 3,000 were saved that day. So I trust that there were uh, a number more than 3,000. It seems that in a crowd that large, um, in that area, there's a high probability that at least some were there, like I said, just 50 days earlier, shouting, shouting, crucify, crucify. And now, Peter, you're calling them out for crucifying the Lord and Christ. This crowd certainly, in theory, could have turned on Peter. And you, you wonder, like as he said, that you, Jesus, the one you crucified, is he pointing his finger out at them? So how do they respond to this message? Verse 37. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Right? This sermon, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it, like, like a surgeon's scalpel, just cut right to their core. The Holy Spirit was powerfully at work in the hearts of many in the crowd that day. And this is exactly what you would hope for. Right, that there would be genuine conviction. Right? They recognized that they were enemies of Jesus, that they played a part in killing Jesus. Right? And maybe some of them really were there shouting, crucify, crucify. But, but certainly others, they heard that Jesus was crucified and, and, and thought, oh, it's about time. That guy was causing so much trouble. Just imagine if he would have kept going with the Romans, how they would have treated us as Jews. And now, now they realize, and they're just going, oh, oh my goodness. I'm guilty of rejecting the Savior that God had sent. My sin nailed him to the cross. What we see here is the Spirit moving powerfully, right? We saw power in the sound of the wind, right? Power was demonstrated by the fire coming down, the, the, the tongues of fire uh, on the believers. There was power in, in the languages just supernaturally being spoken. And now a crowd that had rejected Jesus is ready to do a 180. And this is power. Whenever a heart is open to the gospel, Whenever blinders from this world, world are taken off and a God rejecter is ready to give themselves to God, there's power. And this is what we hope for right? in teaching, in preaching God's word, that, that we would be convinced in our hearts and in our minds. Right? Preaching isn't only about giving information. Uh, though that is a part of it. Certainly we love God with our minds as well as every part of ourselves. 
there's a learning aspect to what we do when we teach the word. But the hope is that by God's spirit, he would reveal what is true about Christ to us and what is true about us and our great need for God to be our Lord and Savior so that it cuts to our hearts, that week after week, God would grow us, not only intellectually, but in our very hearts of who our great God is and why we need him, that he has saved us from sin, that he's invited us to know him and to be known by him. And certainly this is what we should be praying for, our church, that God would cut to the heart. And as a pastor, the reality is, I can't make that happen. The greatest preachers ever couldn't make that happen. Peter couldn't make that happen. It's the spirit that does this. There's no formula. Though many have tried ever since that day to manufacture a church service, a church gathering that would just cut to the heart. They want what they see here in Acts 2 and who, what Christian doesn't want this, but but the mistake is to think that we can make it happen, that, that we can plan like the right number of songs, followed by like a, a tear invoking testimony. And, and if the power can be both funny and have some powerful illustrations, and if we turn the lights down just right at the right time that people will be moved, that there will be this cutting to the heart. That's not how it works. This is God's work. This is the spirit working. We certainly participate. We, we just come with two things. We come with God's word and prayer, nothing more. So there's conviction here, and there's two parts I can see to the conviction of the crowd on that day. The first is that what Jesus said, or sorry, what Peter said about Jesus is true, that, that Jesus lived. He was a real person. God proved that, that he was, that he is the son of God, that Jesus died that he took on the punishment of sin by dying on the cross for sinful humanity, that Jesus rose, that the grave had no chance at keeping Jesus. His body would not decay because on the third day he rose from the grave, defeating sin and death, that Jesus has been exalted, that Jesus is the Lord and Christ. And many in the crowd were convicted of these truths about Jesus on that day. And they were also convicted of their guilt. Right, whether, whether they were the ones shouting crucify or not, they, they recognized that they too were the reason that Jesus was crucified. They were convicted of their sin, of rejecting God. And John's really clear, when, when Jesus is rejected, we are rejecting God the Father. We're rejecting Yahweh. We are opposed to him. And understanding both of these are crucial, right? You can be convinced that Jesus was an actual historical person, that the miracles were real and unexplainable outside of supernatural power. You can believe that he was crucified, that he even rose from the dead and is now in heaven in his rightful place. But if you aren't convinced of your own guilt, then Jesus is nothing more than this great historical person, someone to admire, maybe someone to quote from time to time. So their reply to Peter, to the apostles, is what do we do? Like, tell us right now. We understand who Jesus is and who we are. Help us. What can we do? Peter says in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you 
and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Right? Two things, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Let's first take baptism. Right? If you haven't uh, seen a baptism, uh, baptism is this mini drama where we reenact the death and resurrection of Jesus. We go down into the water. We rise up out of the water. We're, we're saying like Paul wrote, I am crucified with Christ. Right? I've died to my sin. Now I'm raising to new life in Christ. He says to be baptized in the name of Jesus. We're uniting with Christ as we reenact by baptism. The water symbolizing our cleansing from sin. And I not really thought uh, through this before, but to this Jewish audience, to be told to be baptized would involve some amount of humiliation, right? Before John the Baptist uh, came and, and, and was preaching to be baptized, baptism was for non-Jewish people, for proselytes that wanted to, to join the Jews. So to hear John the Baptist say, or now Peter at Pentecost say, be baptized, certainly there was this element of, why do I need to do that? I'm already a Jew. So no doubt some of them had to get over themselves to submit to be baptized. And we may not battle um, baptism for those reasons, uh, but there is a, a battle in making that decision to be baptized. For some, it might be just this embarrassment factor of getting up in front of people, um, just being nervous to do that. I know that we've had plenty of people that they're too scared to like even, even read their testimony. Like it's, it takes so much just for them to get up there. So, so there's that fear of an embarrassment, or maybe there's the embarrassment of, I've just heard so many adults over the years say, like, I should have gotten baptized years ago as if it's just this thing that young people do, right? There's a battle in, in taking that step of, obedi of obeying Jesus by being baptized. I'm sure that for some of that day of the 3,000, there wasn't a battle. They're just ready. They're, they've been cut to the heart. They're going. For others that were cut to the heart, they still, they still had to take that first scary step and make that public declaration that I am Christ, and he is mine. Baptism is uh, the sacrament that begins our journey with Christ, and the Lord's Supper is the one that renews our journey with Christ. So what is being said here about baptism? Is, ba is Peter saying, like, baptism saves you? No. Like, we know that from Romans 10, right, we confess that Jesus Lord, we believe in our hearts, and we're saved. So no, baptism doesn't save, but baptism is the norm in the New Testament for believers, Another issue that, that comes up with baptism and the Spirit in the book of Acts that, that I just want to spend a moment on, and, and I think we ask in verse 38, like, what's going on here? Because the Spirit comes after baptism. Is Luke saying that this is the order of how it goes? Is it chronological? Well, no. We see Luke record in Acts uh, multiple times where, where there's baptism and receiving of the Spirit. It happens in eight, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, I think chapter 19. And there's this combo of, of baptism and receiving the Spirit in two times. It, it, it happens one way. They're baptized and they receive the Spirit. And then, and then two other times it happens the reverse way. So Luke isn't giving us like a step-by-step. Step. This is how it goes, paint-by-the-numbers kind of thing. But he does want us to know that when you come to Christ, 
one gift that God gives to all believers is the Holy Spirit, right? That we are indwelt by the Spirit. He fills us, he empowers us, and he gives us. There's more to talk about baptism, but we'll, we'll save that for later. Uh, let's get on to repentance, right? There is no salvation without repentance. That's why Peter calls them to repent on that day. And repentance is a turning from sin and self and a turning to Lord Jesus, our Savior. Believing, obviously, is critical. Confessing is critical. And, and let's be honest how hard it is to confess when we're wrong about something. All of us, I think, know how our pride gets in our way, how we just don't want to admit that we're wrong. Even the, the littlest things, I find this like with my spouse, we can be the dumbest argument about nothing. I mean, about like, I don't know, a, a kitchen appliance or something stupid, right? And she's right and I'm wrong and I realize it. And in my mind, I've got to fight to say, I'm an idiot, totally wrong, you're right. Right? It's so dumb. Confession is so hard for us. How much harder to confess that we need God, that we are sinners. We need Jesus to be Lord of our life. So repentance, it means we change, right? It's, it's, it's believing that necessitates change. It's this call to leave this old life, to follow Jesus, to die to yourself to make him Lord of your life, to forsake that old way of living and now live for Christ. So repentance recognizes who God is, his perfection, his holiness, his rightful authority over everything, including me, including how I live my life. It's recognizing who we are, acknowledging our sin, our rejection of God, both in word and deed, our helplessness to save ourselves, we acknowledge that and we, we, we continue that we, we do what we do not want to do, like Paul says. Repentance isn't just like feeling bad, right? That's, that's regret, right? Like just wishing I hadn't done something or said something or be, be caught doing something. Repenting involves a change. It's changing who we belong to, who we live for. It's putting to death our old way and giving ourselves to Christ saying, I need you. I need you to tell me how to live. I need you to be Lord of my life. So as they're cut to the heart, they ask Peter, what do we do? He responds with, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. So we have to ask ourselves today, have you repented? Have you turned to Jesus? There are people in every church that come every week right, for any number of reasons, except for the reason that they've trusted in Jesus as the Christ. Right? They haven't turned to Jesus and confessed their need to be saved from sin and make him Lord of their lives, and that is a tragedy. Do you need to swallow your pride today? And for the first time, repent. Or maybe you're a person that knows Jesus is Lord. You have repented, but over time, your following of Jesus, it's eroded. And now you, you're just going through the motions. Who knows how long it has been. Man, turn to God today. Confess to him that you need him. Verse 40, 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So just in case, as you were reading Acts chapter 2, and you're looking at the length of this sermon, and you're like, I think that took Luke like three minutes. Why does Greg take 35 every week? Luke is really clear. It was way longer than that. He said many other words. I'd throw a couple other minis in there. Right? This is a synopsis of the sermon. He, he spoke many other words, but the message is this. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Turn to Jesus. And this must be the message of the church. Right? The, the judgment is coming, that you need to be saved from the brokenness of our world. You need to turn to Jesus. Verse 41, this is what happened. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Right, 3,000 that day. And this brand new church had to figure out how do we incorporate 3,000 new brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and next Sunday, we'll get a flavor of what the beginning was like. But would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that, that, that we, have, we have the accounts of the witnesses. We're reading the, the word of, of those who saw you, who spoke with you, those who, who, who saw you after your death, those who saw you ascend. I thank you for for helping Peter to teach us through the Old Testament about you, Jesus. Lord, I I pray for us, Lord, whether we're in the room or or watching online. God, would you not let us go through this life without an understanding, Jesus, of who you are? Would you open our eyes to our sin? Would you help us to see that, that our need for you cannot be overemphasized. God, would we be a people that turn to you, that trust in you, that that let you call the shots in our lives, Lord? Would we not be a people that refuse to confess that you are Lord? God, that would be tragic. Jesus, would we be a people that, that readily confess our great need for you to forgive us from our sin? God, we thank you. We thank you that that we can be forgiven, that you do forgive when we turn to you. Lord, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.